We're going to spend our time this morning, most of it in this passage that we just heard read from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. This story of Zacchaeus and Jesus meeting. It's a very familiar story to all of us. If you grew up anywhere near the church, you've probably heard this story hundreds of times. Um, but as we continue to look at this concept that runs throughout all of the scriptures of God bringing us to a table, God's desire to have meals with us, um, this one really stands out as demonstrating that this is what God wants. And however you've heard it or learned it or understood it or whatever theological circles you've run in, that this kind of meal is what the gospel is like. It's not like a geometry proof. It's like a meal. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at this today. And as we heard the story read once again, um, if you're in here and you're <clears throat> shorter than this, um, kids, uh, hopefully, um, all of you, uh, all these kids that, that you can identify with Zacchaeus because you know what it's like to kind of be trying to find out what's going on up there, right? You can't see over people. And, and so this man, Zacchaeus, with this, um, this problem that he's, he's not tall enough to see over people, you can kind of get that. And if you're here and you're an adult, you can identify with Zacchaeus as well, maybe for a lot of reasons, but maybe at least that, that you might want to get closer to Jesus, but you find it embarrassing. Or you might want to get closer to Jesus, but you're not sure what it's going to cost. And so you're kind of negotiating a comfortable space with Jesus. So you look at Zacchaeus and you think, huh, that's a different thing. Before we look closely at why this story is here, let's look first briefly at its placement in Luke's gospel, because that's going to tell us a lot. And, and also let's just look briefly at the shocking nature of this story. So first, the placement. Zacchaeus is this rich, young ruler of sorts, right? It says here that he's rich, he's a chief tax collector, he's got a lot of responsibility, he's got a lot of wealth. And this story pairs with the one that we just saw in the, the last chapter that exists in the last chapter of this rich young ruler that likewise meets Jesus and they have this conversation, much like Jesus and Zacchaeus have a conversation, but that rich young ruler in the last chapter goes away sad, right? Because Jesus put his finger on something and indeed that man made some kind of calculus and decided this is too much. I'm not ready for this. Let me, and we don't know what ultimately happened. Um, maybe the guy circled the runway for a bit and decided, you know what? I do want to do this. But we know that in that moment, he went away sad. And now in this moment, right after that, Luke tells another story like it of another rich young ruler. And he says, now here's an alternate ending to kind of coach us. Um, Zacchaeus doesn't go away sad. Zacchaeus leaves the story full of joy, rejoicing. Another way that this placement is important is 
where it's located in all that Luke has done so far. So Luke organizes his whole work around geography. So the beginning of Luke's gospel starts with the whole world, right? Um, There's a decree that goes out from Caesar to the whole world that everybody needs to be um, counted and taxed. So it starts with the whole world, and then the story just kind of funnels through this travel narrative to Jerusalem, and, and then the end of Luke's gospel stays in Jerusalem um, for a long time. And then the beginning of Acts, Luke's sequel, um, picks up in Jerusalem, and Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem, in verse um, 8 of chapter 1, until the power of the spirit comes and then go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. And so here we are coming to where Jesus is right about to enter Jerusalem. If you flip, if you've got your Bible open, you flip one page, you'll see the triumphal entry. So everything that we've learned and seen of Jesus comes down to this meal with Zacchaeus. And I think that We can comfortably see it that way, that all of the DNA of everything that's happened so far in Luke's gospel beautifully comes together in this concise 10-verse story about a man and Jesus meeting and good news of great joy that's for all people, even someone like Zacchaeus, right, comes and We're going to see that as we move forward. But for now, just to see that this summarizes the heart of Luke's whole narrative so far. With that verse in the end, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So now let's look a little bit at the shocking nature of this. This alarming whiplash scandal of this story, which it is. First of all, once again, Jesus meets A tax collector, anytime you'd be reading this, you'd want to spit after you say that word, tax collector. This is a Jewish national. He's a fellow countryman among his um, neighbors in Jericho. And he's he's ringing taxes from his neighbors to give to the Roman Empire. And he's strengthening, strengthening the the grip of this occupying army's, um, like, grip on the throat of his own collective people. He's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. That's the only time that this is used in the scripture. We don't even see it again until the fourth century. And and so Luke is doing something really interesting here. He's uniquely identifying Zacchaeus, not just as a tax collector, we see that a lot. He's a chief tax collector, whatever that is, and he's rich. So I think that those things all go together to just be like, dang, this guy is really good at what he does. I mean, he, had, he is really good at, uh, at, at doing this. He's so good that he's like at the top of the Amway pyramid of tax collecting. Like he's making money off his own efforts, but he's making money off of all these other people that are out there doing stuff on his behalf. He's like this, like, well, I guess he's not big, but he's, he's, um, he's powerful and like a, like a, like a, like a, a mafia don or something. N.T. Wright summarizes it this way in terms of like, helping us get into the 
the relationship here of Zacchaeus with his fellow people. Nobody in Jericho liked Zacchaeus. <laughs> they would have been horrified to think that of all the inhabitants of the town, he would be the one known by name to millions of people 2,000 years later. I mean, who else do we know from Jericho? We know that Joshua went around the wall a bunch of times and that the walls came down, but what else do we know about it? There's a blind beggar sitting out there. We don't know that guy's name. I don't think maybe it was Bartimaeus, but he's not as famous as Zacchaeus. One can only imagine the reaction of neighbors and even of friends and relatives as Zacchaeus' house became more lavishly decorated, as more servants ran about at his bidding. Still N.T. Wright, by the way. As his clothes became finer and his food richer, everyone knew that this was their money and that he had no right to it. Everyone also knew that there was nothing they could do about it. So of all the people, Jesus now meets another tax collector and on the outside he can see the greed and the graft on the outside, this chief tax collector who's rich, Jesus knows that he's stealing and scheming. Everyone knows that. Zacchaeus' flourishing is a direct result of his determination to oppress people. It's obvious. That's the kind of guy he is. He's a leech. Like, all the people in that crowd do something. They build something or they plant or they, they add beauty or justice. Among all these people in the entire crowd, Zacchaeus is one who alone builds nothing. He plants nothing. He creates no beauty. He defends no justice. He alone tends to nothing. He merely skims excessive profits from the creative production of all of his neighbors. That's Zacchaeus, and he's good at it. But unlike anyone else Zacchaeus has ever met, or anyone else you have or will ever know, Jesus looks with compassion through the dense display of Zacchaeus' wealth and power and entrenched willingness to oppress others. And Jesus sees the sickness at the heart. And Jesus sees this sickness like, like, a, like an animal that's in the water upstream. And everyone can see the pollution two miles downstream. Jesus sees upstream to this sickness. And Jesus says, I can fix that. I can heal that. I can change that to make all this water sweet again. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus clearly. And perhaps he's not just curious, I don't think he's just curious. I don't think that you can come to that conclusion. I think that errors have been made and you've probably heard, like you can excessively um, kind of, mm, I don't remember the word, but you know, come up with stuff um, about what's going on here with Zacchaeus, but we know he's not just curious. He's, there's something else in play. He intentionally, for one thing, braves this throng of people who hate him. 
I don't care how like kind of obtuse you are or socially inept. Like you don't just go cruising into that crowd if you're Zacchaeus. You've got to, you've got to need to be in that crowd. There's got to be, you've got to swallow hard and, and, and kind of push yourself to do this. So he intentionally does this. And he also shames himself by shimmying up a tree. Like, I, I liked climbing trees when I was younger. Some of you kids love climbing trees. I'm not going to probably see Jim Kidd climbing a tree later. I'm not going to climb a tree later. Um, Zacchaeus, given that he's a chief tax collector, he's been at this for a while. He's not right out of like Jericho School for Aspiring CPAs. He didn't just graduate. He's been at this for a while. He's probably middle-aged. And so now he's climbing up a tree. Again, that underscores that Zacchaeus is really leaning into this. He's a grown man. So maybe Zacchaeus has begun to recognize that he's hollowed out, that he's poisoned on the inside, that his extravagant wealth, instead of bringing comfort and security, maybe all that he's acquired, all that he has by now, surely, should be giving him some comfort or a sense of accomplishment or that he's finished and, and that now he can start to enjoy. But instead, all these things, maybe they're turning in on him and they're almost pointing fingers at him and saying, you compromised everything for this and now what do you have? Now who are you? Now what are you going to do? It can be like that sometimes, can it? Get really excited about acquiring a new thing or a or, or, or whatever it might be. And God often uses that to discipline us. He uses those kind of aftertastes to get our attention. Like, huh, I really thought it was this, but I guess it's not this. I thought this would satisfy. It did for a while. It's really not anymore. And you kind of put your head up over the parapet and you look around and realize I'm I'm 15 degrees off and Jesus is over there. So Jesus, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus is not merely curious. That doesn't make sense. Whether or not he's hit bottom, we don't know. Regardless of the level of his desperation, we can tell for sure that he's aching on some level with hope that Jesus can fill in what's lacking or that Jesus can heal whatever is diseased. We have to know that. Something is pulling him toward Jesus. So why is this story here? Let's spend a little bit of time looking at that. If we steepen this story for just a minute, we'll see all the strains of the gospel. That Jesus and Zacchaeus together illustrate the whole gospel. Some commentators call this 10 verses the gospel of Zacchaeus because all the ingredients are condensed into it. God so loved the world that he sent his only son and he comes here. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. Whoever believes in him, even someone like Zacchaeus, 
What does believing faith mean? Whoever believes on him, what does that mean? We see it here in Zacchaeus. It means repenting. It means recognizing that thing that's in my heart, the nucleus of my heart that animates everything that I do, that informs my affections and my priorities and my ambitions. It's sick. It's wrong. It's not getting me there. And I need something else. I need this heart of stone to be made into a heart of flesh. That's there. And Jesus, we see, comes and replaces Zacchaeus' heart. He moves into Zacchaeus' heart. And immediately the lights flip on. It's kind of like the last scene of a Christmas carol. That's what we see Zacchaeus doing here. Like Ebenezer Scrooge going crazy. And that's worth like getting through the whole of like the ghost of Christmas future is so hard to get through. But you know it's coming, right? This moment when Ebenezer Scrooge is alive again. And joyful, you see that with Zacchaeus. He's giving half of his stuff to the poor. He's restoring fourfold anything that he's stolen. He's like probably coming back and having to sell his house after he's done like following Jesus, but he doesn't care. And we see what salvation is. Again, at the conclusion of this whole long 19 or 18 chapter section of Luke's gospel, all condensing in here, we see that salvation is not merely the absence of perishing and the gift of eternal life. That's true. John kind of puts it in a transactional way. And here, Luke kind of puts it more in a transformational way. They're both true, but this is just a different look. It's illustrated that Salvation is when God sees, forgives, and removes the swirling sickness at the headwater of our hearts and replaces it with a new nucleus altogether that he himself comes to dwell in us. That's the gospel. That's the offer. And it's best illustrated in meals because that's what actually is happening in our hearts. Salvation is not merely transactional then. It's this transformation So that's why Zacchaeus is here at this critical juncture to give us everything we need to understand why Jesus is here and what it takes for us to receive him. This pattern plays out several times in Luke's gospel that at least we can think about three specifically that the calling of Levi, the tax collector, those parables about stuff that's lost and then gets found. And now Zacchaeus, that Jesus picks the wrong people. He picks Levi. He picks the prodigal son. He picks Zacchaeus. He picks the wrong people and that the right people, the good people, the well-to-do or whatever, put-together people, they complain and they grumble about Jesus' choice. That Jesus is choosing these losers. Jesus is choosing these rejects. Jesus is choosing these sinners instead of us. And then Jesus spends some time in each of those three examples defending his table fellowship. No, this is why I'm doing this. Stuff like um, those who are well don't need a physician, but I came to, to heal sick people. Or the son of man came to seek and save, not people who have their chests puffed out and say we're good. I came to, to find what was lost. And then we see salvation in each of those stories. And then in each of those stories, we see joy. 
So that's the pattern that um, Luke follows here. So as we turn this story, this interaction with Jesus and Zacchaeus around and, and have it search us or find us where we are, As, I, as I've spent time thinking about this and praying for you, praying for different people in our church and demographics in our church, I wonder if there are some people who, you're here, but you're, you know you're on the outside of this. You know that Jesus isn't at your table. Maybe you're here out of curiosity, and that's awesome. We're so glad you're here. Keep coming. Keep listening. Keep enjoying bagels and coffee and meet people and kick the tires. Maybe you're here out of family obligation. Maybe you're a teenager or, or you're, you know, graduated from high school, but you're kind of still in your parents' home and this is what you do on Sunday. Maybe you're concerned about what Jesus will cost you. I, I really resonate with that. And I think back on growing up and being in high school and being in college, and I definitely wanted to negotiate some safe space between me and Jesus because I didn't want him to claim everything and then I miss out on some fun. That's what I thought. Zacchaeus had everything. Play it out. If you're here, use your imagination. Like, you acquire all the wealth you can imagine. And then you end up like Zacchaeus if Jesus isn't there at the center. So Luke flips it around and, and instead of us as we naturally would think, what is Jesus gonna cost us? Luke flips it around and, and he asks us, what, well, what will all that wealth cost you? What? And it's not the wealth, it's the compromise to get to it. What will all that cost you? What will avoiding Jesus cost you? It'll cost you joy. It'll cost you peace. It'll cost, it'll cost you intimacy with your fellow man and being welcomed. So I just put that to you if you're here and you feel like you're still on the periphery or you want to let Jesus in, you give him, you buzz him in through the front gate, but you're not going to let him into the front door and you're just going to let him chill the front porch for a while. Again, that's fine. I'm not pushing you to make some kind of decision today. I'm just saying, think about it and invite Jesus in, ask him, invite him to have more authority in your life. Maybe you're here and you know that Jesus is at your table, but you haven't tended to that relationship very well. And you think, eh, I've taken that for granted. And Zacchaeus is a great way to remember just the simplicity of the closer I am to Jesus, the more joyful I am. It's so simple. It is so simple. And we can keep pushing the snooze bar on this idea by making it so complicated, but it's so simple. Gardens need tending. How do you make your garden better? Pull the weeds out. It's pretty simple. It's not complicated. If you wait another month, it's just going to get worse, not better. It's not complicated. 
vehicles, just change your oil and your car immediately will sound better. So some are here and you need to just be reminded that to the degree you brush Jesus from your calendar, you will brush him from your thoughts and crimp his access to your affections. It's just that simple. And maybe Zacchaeus is here, I hope for all of us, to prompt us to plant more sycamore trees. That, that we think Jesus is this good. He's this wonderful. And there's a whole world that he wants to meet. There's a whole world who needs to meet Jesus. How can you, how can your family, how can your small group, how can we as a whole church, how can we make it easier for people to find Jesus? And I had some specific ideas here, but I deleted them because I knew by now you'd be tired of hearing me and that it would, it would, it would maybe ruin like whatever the Holy Spirit's going to put on your heart or on your mind or on one of your kids' hearts or minds as you talk about this as a family. What can we do to just open the windows a little bit so that people can, can, can smell this feast that Jesus has put into our lives? How can we make that more um, accessible to, to a neighbor or to a friend or to a coworker? If you have ideas for our church as you think about this, I hope you think about it on a personal level, on a family or, or intimate friend circle level and on a small group level. But if you have ideas on like a, uh, incarnation institutional level, please reach out to me or Lindy or Aubrey or Laura or Wilson. I pray as we close that if you are negotiating some partial measure with Jesus, that you'll just let him in and let us all pray and act and communicate in ways that, that connect this Jesus with our neighbors and with ourselves. Amen.